What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, February 4th, 2022. Man, I can't believe it. It's, uh, you know, already February. It's, it's going by quick. Let me tell you, man, it's been an eventful, eventful uh, first month of 2022. Hope you guys are doing well. Hope you guys have been enjoying your year so far. Uh, so this week, releasing an episode on the podcast, Artist of Data Science podcast with Carlos Mercado, his second time on the show, talking about decentralization for data scientists, what's DeFi all about, what's Web3 all about. Um, so if you're interested in all that and how it relates to you as a data scientist, check out that episode uh, just released today. So it's there on all streaming platforms. By the way, if you're listening to this, whether you're on LinkedIn, whether you are on the room or on YouTube, go and rate the podcast, man. Y'all should go and give this thing five stars. You can directly rate the podcast right there in the Spotify app if you have it. It now allows you to do that. Or on well, wherever wherever you watch this or listen to this thing, man, just go go rate it, yeah, or at the very least, smash the like on this uh, on this video if you're watching on LinkedIn. You know, let's. Uh, you know, I can't, can't let John Cronin Dolly out beat me, man. Uh, <laughs> Got to be the premier data science podcast, the art of data science. So be sure to go ahead and smash that uh, like, give it a five star review, um, only five star reviews, please. So yeah, definitely tune into that. Comet office hour earlier this week was uh, fantastic, man. These things are getting better and better every week. We're getting more and more people on to talk about their experience as data scientists. This week, we brought on uh, our good friend. I think everybody here knows her, uh, Shantana Tuli. Uh, she came on the show, as well as Ronnie Huang from uh, from Google AI. He's a research scientist there. And then somebody, if you guys don't know, but, uh, you should know her, Susan Shu Chang. She's awesome. Uh, we talked a lot about, uh, you know, what it's like, you know, a day in their life. At, at work, uh, what experimentation is like for them. Talked about the ins and outs of uh, hyperparameter tuning, best best practices for 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 doing that. Um, yeah, it's a great conversation. So definitely check that out. That's uh, on my YouTube channel. It's also on Comet's YouTube channel. And on Comet's YouTube channel, they've got the the bits clipped out. So it's you know if you just want one piece for it, go ahead and uh, check out those little clips. And we also got bunch of blog posts that accompany that series. So definitely check me out on Medium. If you haven't already, Medium at Data Science Harp. All my stuff is uh, is free for everybody to, to view and, and read, always open. So go ahead, check it out. Smash that follow on Medium. Give it a few claps. Uh, follow me on Twitter as well, Data Science Harp. Uh, I'm going to start connecting with more of y'all. Speaking of connecting, man, I got a chance to, to hang out with some people earlier this week. Uh, uh, hung out with Makiko virtually a lot this week. That was great. Also hung out with... Uh, uh, some community members, Christoph Ogerbeck and uh, Renata. So it was great seeing y'all. Uh, it's been been some time. Um, but now we are here and it's Friday. It's time for these happy hours. I'm excited for it, man. Uh, been a long, long week uh, and another long week to come. By the way, if you are in the Bay Area, if you're in Sacramento, uh, I return back February 13th. February 13th, come back to Sacramento. It's been quite some time, uh, two and a half years to be exact, since I was home. So. If you're there, hit me up. I want to link with you guys. Uh, so let's kick the hour off with a question, man. I'm, I'm curious. What is your favorite API? What's your favorite API? Whether it's a web API, API for, for some library package, what have you. Uh, what, what is your favorite API? What, what is it that you like about that API? Um, and, and how, you know, maybe how is it different from, from not so good APIs? Uh, let's kick it off with, um, let's kick it off with Vin. And then we can go to Russell. And uh, either one of the Eric's, we got Eric Katonga and Eric Sims in the building. Uh, so yeah, let's hear it. Oh, like I don't have a good answer for this one. I don't have a favorite API. 
it's uh, you kind of caught me flat footed. So I'm going to have to defer. Let somebody else go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't really have a favorite one. Uh, uh, Russell, how about you? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so my answer is not a great deal different from Vin's. I'm, I'm not sure I've got a, a great favorite, although I would say uh, the API that works. Definitely my favorite, uh, you know, because they have a habit of being uh, a bit temperamental uh, here and there. Um, and those that are easily configurable, you know, so uh, some interesting data. So, so web, web APIs can be good. I, I can't think of a, a brilliant one off the top of my head. But, um, yeah, let me think about that a bit more, and I'll, I'll try and think of a specific one. But definitely, yeah, the one that works is, is always my favorite. Yeah. Uh, Vince says the one that follows the documentation. Yes, that is uh, also yeah, a good yeah. quality of good APIs. Just one that where you can you follow documents and it does what it's supposed to do. Personally, I like the I like the Twitter API a lot, man, because it's it's very intuitive to me how like the way I interact with the Twitter app, like all the endpoints have the same name as how I interact with the app. So that's very very important as just like a natural extension. I think of of using the uh, the the API versus the application itself. It's pretty good. And in terms of uh, uh, library APIs, like Scikit-Learn, I, I think is awesome because it's super, super consistent. That API is so consistent. Um, doesn't matter what algorithm you use, dot .fit, dot .predict, fit transform, whatever, have, what have you, like it, it's, it's all the same. I think that's a very uh, good quality of an API. Uh, I've been learning the PyTorch API this week. That's been a lot of fun. I'm enjoying that. Uh, Eric Sims, what about you? Uh, by the way, y'all joining on LinkedIn. If y'all joining on YouTube, uh, if you got questions, let me know. We're taking questions. Uh, go for it, Eric Sims. Yeah, so, you know, definitely Scikit-Learn is like what I've probably used the most. Um, and I remember like vividly during my master's program when I like realized or like made the connection of like, oh, there's these uniform things I can fit, I can predict, whatever. And it just like, it made everything seem like way more approachable, like way less scary because I didn't have to memorize so many different things or always be Googling it. I'm always Googling other stuff. instead. Um, but to pick something that I haven't used a lot, but I think is interesting and would like to use some more is the Reddit API um, because it's got so many different pieces to it, you know, being able to, and that's, it's great for, for network stuff, um, because you've got the topics, but then you've got the Redditors, but then you've got the Redditors who replied to other Redditors. And there's just so many like different, different layers to it. Um, and a lot that can come out of it. And so I think that's, it's, um, PRA, P-R-A-W. I think that PRA is kind of, I don't really like the name, but it's the Python Reddit API wrapper. Um, so, uh, <laughs> No, thanks. <clears throat> um, but yeah, like, uh, yeah, so I, I think that I just think Reddit's cool in general. And so I've, you know, I've used it a little bit, keen to use it more. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I've actually never looked at the documentation or, or played around with the Reddit API, but in terms of like bits of information and bits of like things you can get, like payload from an API, I find the uh, Spotify API to be super, super fascinating. There's so much uh, going on there. Like you can collect a lot of interesting data um, from, from Spotify. Uh, great API there. Uh, shout out to Vivian in the house. I haven't seen Vivian in so long. Good to see you again, Vivian. Um, so question coming in from uh, Kosteb right here on LinkedIn. Expanding on the question. I love that. What do you guys look for in good APIs? What are some red flags in APIs? That's a, that's a good question. Um, I was recently reading the uh, the book. Uh, actually, actually the, the book I was reading was uh, on Kosteb's um, recommendation is uh 
software engineering at Google. Uh, and they have an entire section at uh, just talking all about um, uh, documentation and, and the importance of documentation. And yeah, I think a good quality, a quality of a good API is one that just has documents. That's just whatever it is that I'm looking for is so easy to find, right? It just tells me what is the purpose of this thing? How, how do I use it? Um, you know, has it too long, didn't read, you know, it, it, it's just tells me what I need to know very quickly. It makes it easy for me to uh, get to work. Um, if anybody else has inputs on that, I'd love to, uh, love to, to hear. Um, uh, Eric Sims, Eric Gatonga, anyone? Uh, otherwise, if you guys got questions coming in, let me know. Uh, Vin, go for it. I think the thing for me, like documentation, yeah, that uh, consistency, you know, kind of, kind of things we've been talking about, but also if you got a limit or if you'd throttle or if you got a cap of some sort, please tell us, like, don't, don't be coy about your limitations because you can spend weeks trying to figure out what's wrong on my end. And then, Oh, Oh, you have caps. Oh, okay. That would have been good to have in the documentation, but you throw, Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the little things, the things you don't think about documenting that could cause somebody else to have absolute pain. And if you could, you know, implementation coding samples like a GitHub repo would be awesome as well. Just give me a baseline implementation. Cause there's probably something in there I didn't think of. And maybe you didn't document very clearly, or I didn't read very well. So those two right there, I mean, if it has a, a like a, a, like AWS has sample implementations for everything. And just having something like that makes my job so much easier. And I will not be blowing up your support line, which is probably going to be a good thing for your company too. Yeah. Great points. Uh, giving any input, we're talking about APIs, but I know you joined in a little bit late there. Uh, but, uh, yeah. yeah, I was just thinking of how many times I've used frustrating APIs, well, that have bad documentation. And then I've blamed myself. So if you're struggling with an API, it's not you, you're not stupid. An API is only as good as they make it easy to use. So. Yeah, and in that uh, book, Software Engineering at Google, they talk about like knowing your audience. Um, and you know, whoever writes the documentation for an API, like it's one thing, like you are the person who maybe are most familiar with the API, but you can't write from that perspective. You have to write from the, from the perspective of the person that is reading the documentation. So you're kind of optimizing for the reader's experience. Um, so yeah, that means you consider the person's level of experience. You consider the person's domain expertise or knowledge, and you consider why it is that they might be coming to this API. Then you also got to think about, okay, is this person like the type of person who might just stumble upon the API and just hope they find something? Or is this, is this somebody who's going to be like, like laser focused? Like, I know what it is that I want. Just make your documentation clear. Let me get there and figure it out. Um, all good considerations for, uh, for documentation. Um, so if anybody uh, has any more thoughts on APIs, do let me know, but we got more questions coming in from COSIB here. Uh, Russell, go for it. Go for it. I was just going to say very quickly, building upon your comment about Spotify, uh, especially from the last couple of years, given the, uh, lockdown restrictions, et cetera, the Netflix API would probably be really interesting to, to get your teeth into, you know, because I'm sure viewing habits of people for, uh, for Netflix has increased far more than listening habits on Spotify. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting one. Yeah, I never even like thought to check and see if Netflix had like a developer 
API or anything like that. But yeah, definitely worth checking out. Um, good one. Yeah, I think I'll take a look at that. Um, Kosub got a question about models in production. All right, cool. Let's do this, man. Any tips on do's and don'ts for model monitoring? Uh, common hidden challenges, uh, red herrings, or things like that. Um, I, I, I think uh, when it comes to advice and tips, it's probably uh, more succinct to get the don'ts than the do's, uh, right? I don't know. Maybe that's just a personal opinion there, but let's go to Vin here. Uh, and then, you know, if anybody else has tips, let me know. I'll, I might I might pull a couple out of uh, of the brain as well. Vin, any, any tips for do's and don'ts for uh, model monitoring? Monitoring, like your short-term monitoring and long-term monitoring are two different metric sets. That's like the one thing that caught me off guard was what you're measuring week to week versus what you're measuring two months, three months down the road. There's two different two different objectives. So that often means that you have two different sets of metrics that you're tracking because the, the biggest failures only start becoming obvious over longer timescales. And so it's like, I didn't get that for, I don't know, a year, maybe longer than that, that there was, you could just do another set of metrics and you should monitor that. And long-term those trends are important too. Like that's my biggest one. And the rest are just don'ts. Like, don't forget that, you have users and monitoring can't in any way impact them. I'm not saying I've done something that was like overburdensome logging um, that may have slowed things down and don't keep your logs in the same system as production runs in that. That's another, yeah, don't do that either. <laughs> not saying I've done either one of those things. I've just seen someone. <laughs> so when it comes to, to like you mentioned short-term, long-term monitoring, like what are, uh, some examples of of short term monitoring. So, so if, if correct me if I'm wrong here, I would think maybe short term monitoring. You want to look at um, just maybe comparing basic variants and and how scattered your predictions are. If it's for a particular task, but then maybe more long term is looking at like data drift and things like that. Or am I misunderstanding? No, I mean, short term, you're looking for basic accuracy and failure scenarios like catastrophic failure, because short term, usually if something goes wrong, it's really obvious. And longer term, what you're really looking for is some indication that you have a massive flaw in your model that's only going to bite you, say, once every six months or once a year. And if you're not watching for it, you know, and it's always different. It's not like there's one metric that I'm watching for more times than not, I'm really watching for users and their behaviors because they'll react by abandoning the product or abandoning the workflow at really strange times and suddenly. And that'll be kind of my hint that there's something going on that I need to start tracking around whatever they were doing in that one moment. And there's something longer term there that I need to monitor. And that's what I'm really talking about is you've got the short-term stuff, which is obvious, but it's also the long-term. You're looking for anomalies in user behavior. That's been my kind of go-to for long-term monitoring. Anything which all of a sudden shows up and then stops. Like it looks like people are having a hard time and then they're not having a hard time. And if that's not associated with some sort of incident ticket or training or, you know, one of the normal, we've somebody called us and told us that it wasn't working for this reason and we fixed it. But when they're not, it's usually indicative of some sort of longer-term anomaly that's only going to show itself once in a while where it's kind of a, a low 
low data set class of problem that I'm running into that my model is terrible at and I didn't know about. Yeah, and kind of another, maybe on a somewhat related tangent is um, don't believe your uh, aggregate accuracy metric, right? Sometimes I think you might need to drill down a little bit more, look at various segments and see how your model is performing on different slices of data um, because some of that could get buried in the um, aggregate metric. Um, yeah, I guess maybe, you know, just in terms of things for drift, you know, feature distributions of training data, live data, right? Uh, correlations between features, I think, is important for uh, detecting drift, uh, target distributions, things like that. Um, any other tips, uh, Eric, Russell, Vivian, uh, either Eric, uh, any tips on model monitoring? So I was just typing something in there, may as well speak up now. Um, so I was going to talk about drift, actually you mentioned it already, but also bias. And just say that if you're monitoring to identify drift and bias, that's going to be far more easily detectable in your long-term monitoring rather than a short-term. Not that it's impossible, you know, if you've got something that's, um, you know, gratuitous or just extreme, you'll pick it up in the short-term. But I would imagine that under most circumstances, you're going to want to concentrate that type of monitoring on long-term only because it's just going to be those um, extreme cases you'll pick up in short-term. Awesome. Thank you very much. Coastal, hopefully you found that helpful. Uh, and, you know, if you want to join in the chat, man, you're always welcome. Uh, but I want to see what's up with Vivi, man. It's been so long. How you been? Where you, what you been up to? How's, it, how's the new job? Hey, it's been really busy and intense. And I have to say that when you work at Meta, you have to actually like do stuff every day. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know. I just, it feels like the weeks kept getting away from me. I kept thinking I wanted to come back and then the weeks just kept getting away. But another cool thing that happened is I moved to the Bay. So I'm here in the Bay and the weather is awesome. So Nice. Well, I'll be in San Francisco uh, later this month. I'm planning to, to do a little get together. Uh, um, Mikiko, Mark and Co. and, you know, maybe Dalian. Oh, I cool. think she's uh, out there. So I'll definitely get in touch with you as well. I think, um, I think it'll be fun. We'll have a good time. Yeah. Mark was really helpful when I was, I was like, I had been messaging him um, when we were going to come being like, Hey, where should we look? Mm -hmm. Cause, and he had the scoop of all the good places to go look. So, yeah. Uh, where in the Bay are you currently living? Um, right now we just are in an Airbnb. It's like in Redwood city, nice. but um, we, got a place that we move into in like a month it's in alameda nice. and yeah i'm really excited about it that's awesome tenderloin great spots i've got some crazy stories about shit that's happened to me in the tenderloins uh <laughs> don't go there uh past a certain no nah, just don't go there i didn't have a day um all right guys let's see if there's uh, questions coming in please do let me know whether you are watching on linkedin whether you're watching on youtube uh wherever it is that you're joining from if you got questions please do let me know because it's just the time I have, like, I, I think this is kind of a gen, pretty generic question, but I was thinking about it this morning as I was debugging and that was like, uh, I don't know the best way to approach debugging. Like how to even start other than just what I already do myself, you know, which is definitely dependent on the situation, but you know, 
one of the obvious ones is, you know, print here where you think something is happening. Um, so I'm just going to grab that before anybody else takes it. But like, like, how do you, like when something goes wrong, how, where do you start? How do you, how do you get going to, to dig down and figure it out and debug it? And I'm kind of curious because I want to know, like, if there are like specific tools or something or functionality, like, cause you know, there are things in like VS code that I'm sure would make my life easier if I knew they were there and I knew how to use them. Um, so anything that would involve that would be super helpful. I was going to say print debugging is uh, one of my go-tos as well, but then uh, it just, you know, apart from the VS code stuff, there's this um, website called like Python visual tutor that I found to be really, really helpful. Uh, so it just kind of shows like you, you can enter in your code and uh, it shows like how everything's put into the call stack and then what all the intermediate kind of elements look like and then what's happening in the loop. It's it's really helpful. I can share a link to that, the Python Visual Tutor. Um, but yeah, in terms of like VS Code extensions, um, I mean, a good linter, I think, is is helpful for you uh, submit code. But uh I'd be happy to to hear Vivian. What do you use to to debug? Uh, Russell, Vin, uh, Eric, G. Like um, what is like? There's like the little red dots, or there's things like step into, or I guess is that is that part of debugging? Is that what that is? Maybe that's where I was going. Sorry. Go ahead, Vin. Well, I was just going to say that I actually don't use those tools that much because I end up just using the internal Facebook tools so often. Mm -hmm. So, and they have like their own built-in like debugging stuff. So I'm sorry that I can't be more helpful. Yeah. Uh, I know there's something that the, the Python debugger, I mean, you can look that up as well. Uh, Vin, what are your tips for uh, OG tips for debugging? It's the first download Borland. It's the only compiler and development environment you ever want to use. Uh, aside from just dating myself as way past 40. Uh, yeah, figure out the basics of breakpoints if you haven't already. I'm getting the feeling you already know what a breakpoint is and you already know how to step through code. Uh, no, I don't. No. I only see these things, but I've never actually right. done it. So this is what I'm like trying so to ask. There's like two kinds of debugging. No, I got you. Okay. So there's two types of debugging. One is when stuff blows up, you know, and you're actually getting an error and it's telling you something is going wrong. More times than not, that error will tell you what line it is. It's lying to you. It's really someplace further up that's messing up, but you're seeing the the actual failure further downstream. So yeah, just put breakpoints in and figure out, you know, follow your key variables, figure out what it is based on the message, if it's meaningful. Because I know some Python error messages are amazing and some look like they intentionally don't want you to figure out what's broken. They're, you know, a lot like Java that way too, where it's just like, what are you talking about? What does that mean? So yeah, try to parse through the error message. If it doesn't make any sense, just breakpoint your way backwards figure out what it is that, because that's really the hardest part is figuring out what really blew up and what it is that caused it. And a lot of times that's just working backwards. And so, yeah, just put breakpoints in and then you can step through the code. It's harder when you're trying to debug like a UI, but now there's a whole lot more debug tools for UIs that are, especially web UIs. So for like web pages and that sort of thing, yeah, the tools are a whole lot better than they used to be. And you can even step through that now. And then there's the other kind of failure where it's like, this doesn't work, but it doesn't blow up. 
And that's the really terrible debugging where it doesn't error. It simply does something really strange and they don't tell you the greatest steps to reproduce because when you're doing machine learning, like there aren't any. So they'll give you like this vague front end isn't doing this thing. And then you just got to, it's, this is the ugliest thing is when you have to go backwards and figure out, is it the front end? Is it a back end or is my model really messed up? Because they, at least some people that I've worked with enjoy blaming the model when they don't understand how their own code works. And so I have to sort of prove their codes busted. And that's literally a critical piece of debugging is not always believing it's your code and looking at everything else that it could be to make sure the bug's actually yours before you do the horrible thing of figuring out how, how your model possibly is serving this terrible, terrible inference that's causing all this stuff downstream. Because more times than not, you have to put in a ton of logging in order to even catch what you might be serving that could potentially lead to whatever obscure behavior that they've got downstream. And so debugging, when it comes to actual model behavior, then you're talking about a ton of logging and then tracing back from those logs. And then it gets ugly because you have to figure out why your model, you know, the bigger the model, the less likely it is you're ever going to figure it out. And that's really the problem is it might do it once. And then three months later, it does it again. And that's all you have to go on. Literally, there's just two tickets. Did this thing, did this thing again. And you you almost have to advertise like, I can't, I'm sorry. I don't know. We should just put something in place to catch this and make sure it doesn't ever get any further than you know, the back end and apologize profusely or something. So yeah, debugging is actually really complicated when it comes to that second piece where it, it doesn't fail, but it doesn't behave as expected. Thank you very much. Then uh, go for it. Eric. Oh, I was just saying thanks. That made sense. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. There's uh, some great tips here from Russell. Russell, go for it. And then uh, if, uh, uh, I think Antonio joined. Antonio and Mark, if you guys got uh, any tips for debugging, uh, now's the time to uh, compile them and uh, share. Uh, Russell, go for it. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I just put a quick comment in that um, that was um, supplemental to what Vin was saying at the time, uh, just separating out um, kind of proactive, preemptive debugging you know, looking for potential issues if there isn't a complete failure versus the panic mode debugging where something does blow up and, you you know, you really need to drill in and, and find whatever the issue is. Uh, and further then, I would I absolutely second Vince's point about the breakpoints. So you, you can step in and, and look, um, like, compartmentalize the... the Looks like uh, Russell has um, oh, uh, sequentially, rather than have to look at the the entire thing, especially. Oh, am I coming back? Yeah, you're back. You're back. All right. So, uh, looks like there's yeah um, issues with that. Russell's. Uh, this is all locking up on my side. I think I've got an issue. Yeah. Uh, no, no worries. Costab uh, says writing a black box test helps when debugging. So there's some vocabulary words to uh, look up there as well. Um, so uh, let's go to uh, Mark or Antonio. Any tips? 
um I, yeah i can get some some tips i don't out i just joined so i don't know uh <laughs> eric yes i do have 60 minute air supply in my closet with the door closed <laughs> um i don't know what's already been discussed but <clears throat> i mean the first thing that goes pops into my head is you know one writing clean code in the first place uh, you know that doesn't say like you need to write production from the get-go but writing clean enough code where you, there are going to be bugs and so taking the extra time to actually like follow a style guide you know, Pepe or whatever language you're using um, goes a really long way in having those variables I think that's the baseline but something that's been drilled into me from the engineering team when I'm running code now is like having logging having logging is so critical just to see like where does something break is it being logged the way you expect it um, that's been extremely helpful for that and being very thoughtful where you put your logs. Um, especially there's been times where like, maybe I did like a for loop and all of a sudden I see my log popping up over and over and over again. I'm like, wait, <laughs> the for loop's not supposed to work like that. Like, why is that happening? Right. So there's things along those lines. Um, in addition, uh, going a little bit further, like you do like different raise exception errors, uh, within your code. That's, uh, also very helpful, uh, when, when doing your, uh, your code and then uh, unit tests, both for after, because uh, you know if you change code, the unit test will probably catch something and something breaks. But more importantly, what I found is when I do a unit test, because you're testing like, this is the expected logic that I wrote. And there's been so many times where I create a unit test and it fails immediately. And I'm like, oh, that is not doing what I expected. And that's caught it like a lot of bugs from the get-go. Um, more on the engineering side, um, I'm very thankful for engineers having continuous integration and deployment. And so when, uh, before I can even merge code or even get, a P, uh, get the PR review, it has to pass all the tests first before I even send it to engineer. So um, that's something that I expect many data scientists not know how to do. I don't know how to do it. I'm, I'm learning how to do it. I think Akiko posted a really great link recently for the GitHub actions um, as a way to, to implement that. Um, and then kind of going to like other things, you know, there's debugging code, but also there's like debugging data. And so something I really work with a lot is I'll start with a uh, dummy data set that I know what the outputs can be and run it through. And, you know, am I getting the expected output from this dummy data set as compared to when you're working like a production data set that has like millions of rows or billions of rows, there's no way to really easily get that data quality down unless you have like a data quality team already implemented and most orcs don't. Thank you so much, Mark. Uh, Eric Gitonga in the uh, chat says he remembers pulling his hair out in freshman intro to programming where a missed semicolon got him the wrong results. Take a day to figure it out. Code is producing output, but just wrong output. Uh, then he also says logging has definitely been helpful while playing around with compiling the Linux kernel just to figure out how it worked. Logging definitely helped in figuring out stuff that broke. Awesome. Um, Antonio, are you still here? Oh, he's not. Um, <clears throat> oh, uh, Costa on LinkedIn says regarding debugging, how much do you uh, rely on code structure to help versus uh, identifying? Uh, how much do you rely on code structures to help identifying issues? FP principles, atomic functions, strong types. Uh, I know the last one isn't Pythonic. Um, some questions to consider. Um, I can I can try to take a stab at that. Um, I think something that I think thing about my code structure is you know I've been big fan of either functional programming in R, but uh, object oriented programming in Python. 
And, you know, if you're writing anything, that's how I started academia. I had zero functions. Just you run the script from beginning to end, all 300 lines. And I got the statistics for me to publish, right? Um, that is horrible. <laughs> and trying to debug that when something breaks, that's really rough. And so if you move towards actually like object-oriented programming, you know, you have these classes, you have these uh, functions with clear names and everything is calling to certain things. And so when something breaks, I can clearly see in the code, oh yeah, this line called this function and this function, this line right here, it broke. That's way easier to understand compared to like, go to line 136 out of 300 and understand what went wrong. Yeah, that's the great tips. I remember like, you know, I spent quite a few years writing code in SAS, SAS, um, I was a biostatistician and making that transition to like Python was, it just was so difficult for me to wrap my head around. Cause I think, uh, SAS is really just like, it's more procedural step-by-step -step type of thing. So you just run from top to bottom, get the results. Um, but thank you for sharing that Vin. Uh, any other tips here? Uh, Vin says, try to catch, try catch is a new print statement. Um, Awesome. Hey, yo, questions, uh, keep them coming. Let's go. Uh, questions coming on LinkedIn or on YouTube or here in the chat, please do, uh, go for it. Right. Okay, this isn't a question, but I yeah. just got to throw, I'm just going to throw one thing out. Yeah. I am super stoked because I have been like, so I've been in my current role for just over eight months and shortly after starting, my role, I got this, this project and it was potentially going to be a little challenging, but not a huge deal. And it ended up being a thing that took forever. And I have been working across like all these different teams to get things developed, to help make sure that the data is doing what it's supposed to be doing and validating and everything. And just today, finally, um, it has, I like finished the validation and figured out what like i'm pretty sure the revenue impact will be over the next year and there is a revenue impact so that's good um and so i'm, I'm excited for it but also i know now like you know yay analysis is done but now it's like okay now like it's on the product team's radar but like sticking with it and helping make sure that it gets seen through to completion so i feel like i'm like halfway halfway across the bridge even though it feels like i want to be all the way across the bridge because like my piece is like the biggest piece is done, but I think we're only about halfway. Uh, but I'm stoked. I'm I'm super happy about it because it's just been like a monkey on my back for so long. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there because I'm excited about it. Congrats, man. That's awesome. Super happy for you. Love love when Thanks. stuff like that happens, man. So keep it up, Eric. Keep it up, man. Uh uh question from Mark. Go for it. Yeah, so I have a question around like data business models. Um, so <clears throat> I'm in the DAO, uh, yeah. web three business stuff. Um, and one of the projects we're working on is building an analytics tool for, uh, NFT communities, really fun project and just a good way to practice kind of like bringing something to market. Something I've been really exploring right now is just like, all right, cool. We have this idea of like some cool technology we're validating in the market, but you know, what's the business model behind it? And like, does it make sense? Do those levers make sense? And a big part of that are cost. So cost of goods sold. And when you're a data company, your goods are data. Um, so how do you acquire data? How do you store that data um, with various APIs? And I'm just curious if anyone's done that, whether it's for a whole company or just for like a, sim a simple project. 
I'm mostly looking at Ben because I feel like he's done this before. Um, but like, how do you go about determining, like scoping out, like what would be the expected costs of doing, you know, processing and acquiring your data? Um, I know AWS has like certain, and like you can look at APIs for the pricing, AWS is a calculator, but like trying to figure out like how to like forecast, like, all right, when we, when we release our MVP, it's going to be this price, but like when we reach 10 customers or hundred customers, what does that price look like? And does the number still make sense? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, that's like, you're, you're asking holy grail questions right there. So yeah, figuring out the cost of data is, it should be stable, but it isn't. You know what I mean? It should be a stable cost because you should only have known sources, but you're going to start generating data through processes and you have to sort of assign costs to the data gathering side of that versus all the other things you're doing, like all the other reasons you're doing that process for. It's typically around a product where you'll have a feature and that feature generates data. And so part of the cost of implementation for that feature is data gathering, booked against data gathering. Part of that feature is booked against like the actual feature itself, the engineer, the engineering platform. You have depreciation costs. You can also, um, I can't remember what the fancy word, like the finance word for it is, but you can, um, you can write down some of the cost of developing a new product in a cool taxi tax ish way. And so that's going to go on to another line item. So that's why I'm saying like, you're asking kind of voodoo questions and holy grail type of questions because it's not amortization. It's something, no, it's got a different, it's something else where it's like, you get a special tax break for it. And so it's written on a different line. Like it's a cost of, of R and D something. Like I said, I'm just blanking on the name, but the, like the financial calculations of the, of all that is like somebody way smarter than, you know, than I, as far as like, what is the exact number that you would book? But I got to tell you, if you're in a startup or if you're in, um, you know, any sort of small organization, the number doesn't really matter. I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to project out costs long-term and you're not going to be able to do, you're not going to be able to do that in any sort of reliable way because data costs are going to be something that you're trying to get towards zero. You want to make it as automated as possible and you want to drive the cost instead of going up, drive it down. So really whatever you project today is going to be more, if you do it right, is going to be more than what it costs you in the future. So it doesn't really matter if your numbers are off a little bit and you're also going to look at it as a commodity. It's an asset. And so your valuation actually increases based on the valuation of your data and the size of your data. And so it's going to go against your balance sheet. And so when you start talking about like data as a business model, you're going to have the data as like the core valuation for your or core piece to the valuation of your company. So that's another, like that's more important to focus on than how much it costs to acquire because once it's part of your valuation, then legitimately no one ever cares again how much it costs because every time it gets better, your valuation goes up by a significant amount. And so, so it's a revenue generator. Quick quirk, I think it's kind of like a Web3 quirk to this, is that cool, like your data can be an asset, but with the blockchain, everyone has access to that asset. So it's not like a key differentiator. 
or is it the fact um, that we're able to process and have it within that that's the key differentiator uh so it's the traditional model for data you're right that invalidates it because it is a static resource that some companies end up putting on their balance sheet so traditional business model that isn't like data centric or model centric you're right that invalidates that portion of it but really it's the fact that you have access to it and control of it and if you are doing it right you are not putting all the data on the blockchain I understand transparency and all that, but you should be kind of holding some of the sauce back. Yeah. I'm not writing, reading, reading from the data. So gotcha. that makes sense. Yeah. Cool. You should Thank be you. because you're gathering data and then you're doing something with it. And if you're doing something valuable with it, what comes out of that transformation is the unique piece. That's what's valuable. And so the fact that you have access to it, that's one thing. If everyone has access to it, you know, obviously that's not a value you add, but you should be holding something which is unique and that's what so, you can monetize. So it'd be like a feature store would be like the key thing that's like kind of be, maybe it's the feature store is the wrong word, but like all the data transformations that we made and all the features we made, they're like, hey, this is actually really powerful that other people wouldn't have. No, you're going to do something with that data. It's not okay. like a ETL type, do something with it. You're going to you're going to transform it. And I mean, transform like in a bigger capital T, not small T. Okay. You're going to do some sort of major transformation to that, which creates a unique data set that somebody couldn't easily grabbing the same data replicate. And mm -hmm. typically it's experimentation that leads you to that novel data set. And that's why I say there's a process that will create data for you. And that's going to be sort of an expense when it mm -hmm. comes, you know, down, down the road, that is partially just to create the data set because experimentation, especially novel experiments are what create the best unique data sets and the highest value unique data sets. And what you can keep proprietary in that case is the nature of the experiment that leads to the high quality data. That'll end up being a competitive advantage until somebody else figures it out. So it's not long-term, but I mean, you know, it's one of those things that you can actually monetize the data on top of and so yeah. that's, you know, when you talk about a modern business model built on data, trying to value the data that you have really is a matter of, that's the more important matter is figuring out mm -hmm. how to value it and creating something that's unique that somebody else can't do. Super helpful. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, we're going to have to go back to the, the drawing board. Iterative process, as always, with trying to bring something to market. Yeah, it's hard. Do you have any like case studies off the top of your head, maybe that, you know, white paper, some we can look into to get some more context around that? It sounds really fascinating. Everyone that's figured this out won't talk about it because it's part of their voodoo. Like Facebook knows exactly how to do this. They don't publish it. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to meta. My bad. <laughs> there's, yeah, it's, there's a lot of companies that have figured this out, but it's not something you advertise because just figuring it out is an advantage. You don't want everyone with a data set to suddenly get into business. And now you're buying data. You know, it's almost one of those things where you don't want people to be smart enough to start a business around it because you know, as a large company, it's going to start getting painful. Oh, like, for, like just taking Facebook as an example, uh, like they have their, their data, right? They're the only ones with the access to their users' data. So I, I could see how in that, situation that data is like uh 
definitely an asset has some monetary value right but what about it you know if you're doing like like mark's talking about web3 if you're just kind of quote like crudely using the word but just scraping data from from the web that that anybody can can get so when you do that that's when you're saying like doing your unique transformations your unique experiments to then get some meaning out of that data that is like the the intellectual property is what's valuable not necessarily the data itself because everybody has access to data but not necessarily the ip to transform it the way you did right yeah i think it was bezimer that sort of wrote up the basics of what makes data an asset and it is that it has to be unique you control the process that creates it and so if you are the only one who has access to it you know you think of twitter they control the process which creates some extraordinary data sets meta same thing google same thing amazon same thing they all control and you even look at a smaller company like uber they control the creation process for some really interesting data sets and that's the like i said i think it's bezimer that came out with that definition so it's any data generated by a process you control that is not easily duplicated and so that's how they started valuing startups when it came to you know do you actually have data that's worth investing in do you actually have models and it's the same thing if you build a model they want to know that it's a model that is not easily replicated there is some process that you control that created this model typically it's a unique data set or some sort of process that's the intellectual property that led to a model which you will be able to improve faster than anyone that would figure out the same things you did and then try to catch up with you. You know, that was their, it was a little more convoluted, but their, the definition of it with data was a whole lot more straightforward and easy to understand. It's just anything, anything that's not something somebody else could do next week or with, you know, six months worth of R and D. Yeah. It's kind of where these, uh, I guess they're called alternative data companies are, are kind of popping up. That's how they're getting the, uh, their, their value from like, uh, for example, like the one that I could think of as bright data, uh, it's publicly available data, but then how they get it, what they do with it to then make it valuable for you. Uh, that's what leads to those high price tags. Um, okay. That's interesting. How do you spell Bessemer? By the way, is that B E Z E M E R? I can never spell it. B E S S E M E R Bessemer. I can't, I can't spell. I'm sorry. Yeah, no my daughter asked me to help her with a spelling test the other day. And one of the words that she asked me for, I got wrong. So <laughs> like, I just, yeah. I'm sorry. It's one of my weaknesses. I've got it here. It's uh, it's uh, if, if anybody listening, the, the link will be in the show notes. Uh, so subscribe to the podcast and YouTube channel. You can get that. But uh, Bessemer Venture Partners, uh, Roadmap, Data Infrastructure. Um, I think that might be uh, of interest. Uh, I'm curious, anybody else? Uh, Vivian, can you talk about the type of data you're working with at, uh, at Meta? Is that? Um, I don't work with user data. I, I work with like an internal ticketing system to repair stuff for the data centers. So it's not like, I, it's not like really super cool, interesting data that people would like want to bump me for. <laughs> I think it's super cool and interesting, Vivian. I, I do. Uh, if, well, anybody else, yeah, if anybody else has questions or comments uh, on this topic, please do let me know. Um, Mark says that's what Zuck trained her to say. Quite possible. Um, speaking of Facebook, man, I was listening to the uh, uh, Lex Friedman podcast with Jan uh, Lacoon. Oh my God, that was so good, man. 
uh definitely check that out it's uh i mean i've been watching it for well over a week and i'm still not done it's uh like almost four hours but some like the the philosophy of deep learning that they're talking about is so fascinating so definitely check that out uh, a couple other episodes that were really interesting on Lex Freeman's podcast were with um uh tra is it travis or trevor olifant the creator of numpy and anaconda uh and then his business partner peter wang uh who's still at anaconda uh that's like a super cool insight into like the history of how these packages that we use and take for granted came to being uh, and came into existence that's that's fascinating man hearing these guys talk about that stuff um so highly recommend checking those out uh shout out to lex friedman respond to my email come on my show uh all right anybody got questions or anything or comments let me know russell works at a company that builds data centers for facebook and and meta oh nice All right. Uh, well, look, if there's no questions, no comments, I guess we can call this one uh, a wrap. It's the last time. Oh, speaking of yeah, Web3 and, and stuff like that, uh, I saw, you know, obviously released the episode with Carlos today. So check that out, everyone. Um, decentralization for uh, data scientists. But uh, Mark, you might have some insight into this. Like, what was this, uh, I guess, heist for lack of a better word from the ethereum blockchain of all this value like what was that all about can you, uh, i haven't got a chance to like read read news or, or dig into it um but i'm hoping you might be able to uh illuminate <laughs> that stuff goes beyond me i can try to give it a shot yeah i'm just gonna be repeating what carlos put in the discord uh, so carlos would be the person <laughs> to, to talk about but i guess like um you can think of you have all these various chains so you have ethereum Bitcoin, you have, uh, have a chain and then you have like Solana. So like all these different chains. And so there's these things called bridges where, you know, how do you connect different chains to each other? Um, and like, basically how do these different computers keep the same state? And so there was a bug with a certain one. Um, and they call it wormhole F where basically like millions of like dollars worth of F was corrupted and is lost in the ether and it's like deleted. And so like, essentially it was like, the best way I can put it is say for instance, your computer files got corrupted and they were deleted and you can no longer access it. But like those computer files are worth millions of dollars each. That's the best way I can describe what happened in, in simple terms. And it probably doesn't even come close to like the whole scale of it, but I'm happy to find some cool links and share it with you. Maybe share it with the people. That'd be great. <clears throat> We'd love to read into that and learn a little bit more. Um, cool. Right. Good. You know, last call for questions. If nobody has questions, we can go ahead and uh, and wrap this up. Uh, let me just shout out a few things happening, right? So uh, next week, coming up on Wednesday, got the Comet Office Hours. We're doing a talk on uh, reproducibility, talking about reproducibility in machine learning, uh, speaking with Tiffany Fabianic, who is um, a data science or, or rather AI and ML lead at AstraZeneca as well as uh, one of our own internal experts, uh, head of research at Comet, uh, Dr. Douglas Blank, who, uh, he's awesome. He's super, super knowledgeable. He's got such a huge history in, uh, in, in machine learning and, and robotics. Uh, we're going to be talking about reproducibility, and that'll be a lot of fun, so definitely check that out. Um, <clears throat> and uh, coming up for the quick, podcast this week, yeah, go for it. Quick question. When you say reproducibility, like, 
what do you mean by that? Like reproducibility as in like experiments? Because I mean, I know I'm comments like experiment management or like reproducibility in the sense of like strong code. Like I feel like there's so many different angles you can take in the ML space. I'm just very curious what you mean by that. Yeah, definitely. So keep an eye out for the blog post I'll be releasing on Monday where I talk all about reproducibility and uh, what that means. But in, uh, so definitely check out the blog post, tune into the podcast, but at a high level, it's just, you know, like if, if I give you like my code and my data and you run the thing, you should get the same results as, as I do. Right. Um, but that doesn't always happen. Uh, and we need to think about how we can ensure that happens. So a lot of, um, uh, a lot of, I guess, best practices that I've collated from a lot of different experts and just kind of putting it all in one place. Um, and yeah, just, just talking about, yeah, reproducibility, machine learning, much like reproducibility and like drug discovery, reproducibility and science type of thing. Um, but yeah, hopefully that, that, hopefully that entices you to go check out the blog post when it's, when it's released. Cool. Um, there's like nobody watching on LinkedIn anyways. Uh, so we'll go ahead and call it a evening. Uh, thank you all so much for coming and hanging out. I uh, appreciate you guys spending part of your Friday with me. Uh, sh you know, just uh, shout out that I'll, I'll be back home in Sacramento on the 13th of February until the, uh, I leave on March 1st or March 2nd, something like that. So definitely want to reach out uh, to to everybody who's uh, there. So Mark and uh, Mikiko and Vivian and everyone, you know, we're going to be hanging out. So I'll, I'll be in touch. Uh, then definitely try to find some way to get to Reno. Hopefully, uh, hopefully I 80 is not like, you know, covered with snow and, uh, and yeah, I can also come out there. I mean, it's yeah. San Francisco's not, it's like 45 minute flight. <laughs> yeah. We're not far away. Yeah. yeah. We'll definitely be in touch, man. Uh, so yeah, want to hang out with everyone, uh, Sadie St. Lawrence as well. I know she lives out in Sacramento, so we'll be having a good time. Everybody. I'm looking forward to that. Can't wait to get the hell out of this snow. It's too goddamn cold. Uh, I'm, I'm done with it. All right, y'all take care. Have a good rest of the weekend uh, and tune into the podcast. Remember it's out, rate it, give it five stars. Y'all take care. Have a good rest of the evening. Remember you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. Peace.